So this past week, I was away on vacation, which is why we had that little awkward transition moment. I think part of my mind is still at the beach, or part of my mind still wants to be at the beach. Um, But I was away on vacation. It was my family reunion in the Outer Banks. We do this every year. This was the 50th anniversary of the first reunion, which was held at my grandparents' house in West Springfield with a lot of people sleeping on the floor. This year, we got five beach houses. We've come a long way. Every year, we gather and we spend time together and have some meals together, and we keep up old traditions like Christmas in July, complete with Santa Claus. Now, getting together for meals is actually a bit challenging. Since, since there are almost 80 of us. It's a lot of mouths to feed. But we split up the cooking. One part of the family takes a meal one night. The other part of the family takes it the next. As a child, I had nothing to do with putting these meals on. It was fantastic. But now as I've grown up, or at least grown older, I've started contributing more. And the past two years, I even was part of help serving the main dish. Now, I know that oftentimes my intros and my stories skew young, but I thought that for those of you that have grown children, it might be appropriate to start off a sermon about sanctification or growing in grace by talking about a grown child bringing food to a family dinner. Can I get an amen? Long walk for a short drink of water. Last week, we talked about Paul's message to a Philippian church fracturing under the weight of persecution to be united around our common salvation in Jesus Christ. We spent some time talking about the Christ hymn that Paul quotes that describes what Jesus did for us and how God raised Christ to have the name above all names and that every name will bow to the name to the real Lord Jesus. This week, we are going to talk about how to move forward in light of that reality. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Uh, It's printed in your lifeline. It will be displayed on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we give them them away for free. My mind is moving faster than my mouth. We give them away for free at our welcome table out in the cafeteria. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, this is a relatively short section, and you might think there's not enough meat in here for a whole sermon. Friends, don't underestimate my ability to talk for 20 minutes about really anything. But seriously, this section holds within it a key feature of Wesleyan or Methodist theology. 
So I think we ought to look thoroughly and consider this in detail. And if, if at the end, it turns out there wasn't enough for a full sermon, well, then we'll, we'll get out early, and that never hurt anyone. I'm just drawing at nothing today. <laughs> Shall we begin? I'll stop with the jokes. I probably won't. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, sorry, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here is where we are going to spend the bulk of our time. This one sentence, these two verses. Paul begins with the word, therefore. This connects what he is about to say in this sentence with what he has just said. And what he has just said is that Christ was obedient to God. Christ humbled himself, taking the form of a human being, and suffered death. Then God exalted Christ and gave him the name above all names. God made Christ, not Caesar, Lord, the person to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Now I know I'm repeating myself because I said this like four minutes ago. But it is so important that we have this image of Christ in our mind. Not a triumphalist image of Christ, but a Christ who obeys, empties himself, suffers, and dies. And we must remember that the triumph, the exaltation, comes only as a work of God after the obedience, after the pouring out, after the suffering, and the death. We have to hold this image in our minds because Paul is going to bring back this same construction in like eight words. And if you think I'm lying, Paul continues and tells the Philippians that as they have always obeyed, and I have to stop here, we move in slow today. Sorry, or you're welcome, depending on whether you like it or not. The word Paul uses for obey here, he's used recently, really recently. And you might guess where, in the Christ hymn, where he says that Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And remember what Paul said right before the Christ hymn, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who was obedient, and you have always obeyed. Paul is just getting started. Paul says the Philippian church has obeyed in his presence and in his absence, which is a somewhat curious aside. And I have learned thus far that Paul is not one to throw away words. He generally says everything with a purpose, even if it sometimes doesn't seem like it, because he's verbose, not unlike myself. He generally said, we talked about it last week, that we don't have much understanding of the context of this letter, at least in comparison to others of Paul's letters. Like, we can reconstruct pretty well what's going on in Corinth when he writes the letters to the Corinthians. And we know really well about what's going on in Galatia for the letter to the Galatians. But we don't know what's a lot about what's going on in Philippi and what the Philippians are dealing with. And so we have to speculate a little. But his phrasing here, as you have in my presence and now much more in my absence, is a bit curious. I have two theories. Remember that the Philippians were most likely experiencing some form of persecution for their belief that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord. Last week, I speculated, and I think I'm on okay ground doing so, 
that Paul's overuse of words like all and everyone, as well as his continued encouragement for them to remain united, leads me to believe that the church at Philippi was fracturing as a result of persecution. Assuming this is the case, it seems plausible that feedback from the elders in the church at Philippi could be to Paul, we need you back here. We need you back here to bring us together. Or perhaps they even blamed Paul's imprisonment and his absence due to being in prison for the continued fracturing. Paul, in turn, tells them that even more in his absence, they need to stand firm in their obedience to Christ. Now, my second theory gets a bit dark. Paul is in prison for spreading the gospel, a gospel that got Jesus killed, a gospel that would wind up getting all of the apostles killed. I think it's entirely possible and plausible that Paul could be preparing the Philippian church for his eventual death in prison. The words that set this, the, the, the words that set this construction off, obedience, was the word that was used to describe Christ's death. Christ suffered death out of obedience. Now Paul is talking about obeying using the same word and that the Philippian church and what the Philippian church ought to do in his absence. Paul has already talked about in chapter 1 that he is prepared to die. It could be that Paul is very concerned about the Philippian church being able to stay together after the founder, Paul, is killed. Would the Romans killing Paul combined with the pressure being exerted on members of the Philippian church be enough to put the church to rest entirely? Would Paul's death motivate the members in Philippi to tap out, as it were? Could Paul be saying, Christ was obedient to death and was exalted. I am prepared to be obedient to death in the hope of being raised with Christ, and you all should be as well. Paul then transitions to the most important part of this sentence. And I know what you're thinking. You mean to tell me we've been talking about this sentence for 10 minutes and you're just now getting to the important part? Yes, that's true, but you love me anyway. Paul says, Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. John Wesley wrote one of his greatest theological, 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 red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. All right, we're good. John Wesley wrote one of his greatest theological treatises that I've, that I've ever written on just this sentence. It's his best articulation of what sanctification and Christian perfection are all about, which is, in my estimation, his greatest gift to the history of Christian thought. So we're going to talk about that for a few minutes, shall we? After I drink some water. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. On first glance, it would appear that this is a works righteousness type of salvation, which in other places Paul completely rejects. Paul is the founder of a theology of grace alone. So we're going to assume that Paul hasn't gone completely crazy here. What else could he mean? This is one case where we can't look at just one clause at a time. You see, while it's separated by a new verse, you can't divorce, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling from, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
And John Wesley sums it up best with his maxim, God works, therefore you can work. God works, therefore you must work. God works, therefore you can work. This is a pretty adequate summary of the Christ hymn quoted earlier. God has worked in this world in Jesus Christ. God has worked in your life, bringing you to faith. Before that, there was no hope of salvation. And this is especially true for all of us who are Gentiles, which is precisely what the Philippian Christians were. You see, we were not included in the original covenant. We were not part of God's people. Beyond that, original sin had made it so that we could not help ourselves. We couldn't come to God on our own. We couldn't be righteous on our own. We were pretty helpless and hopeless. But then God acted in Jesus Christ to open up the church and God's people to include the Gentiles. And God has acted in each one of our lives to make us aware of God's presence. God's prevenient grace, the grace of God that comes to us when we have no knowledge of God, has convicted us of our sin, has told us that God exists and that God is holy and that we are not. And despite our faults, God's justifying grace has called us child. God's justifying grace has told us that we are forgiven, we are loved, and we are accepted, that we are a part of God's family. But that isn't the end. The end for us isn't justification. It isn't just a place in God's family. It isn't just a place in heaven. Our end is perfection. Our end is sanctification. And all of these are actions of God. All of these are operations of God's grace that have enabled us to act. We are now free to attempt to be righteous. We are now free to attempt to be good. We are now free to attempt to try our best. Knowing that we have already failed and knowing that even our failure can't separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, we are given the freedom to try to do as God would command. God has worked which enables our work. We can now work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now at this point I should point out that fear and trembling is perhaps not the best rendering of that phrase. Because it sounds like we ought to be scared of God, which is not the point Paul is making. We aren't operating out of a worry that if we put in a misstep, God will punish us or hurt us or damn us. That would negate justifying grace. God is a good, good father after all. The meaning of the phrase is closer to awe. We should work out our own salvation with the proper respect and amazement that is due to a God who has gone to such great lengths to enable our work. You see, you were bought with a price. Our relationship with God has cost God something, namely the life of his son. We ought to respect that. We ought to tremble at that fact. God has worked, therefore we can work. But since God has worked in such a way that it has hurt God, it has cost God, friends, we really have to work. Here Burgess Meredith saying, what are you waiting for? Tickets? I thought about trying a Burgess Meredith impression, but that was just going to go nowhere. We have to respect what God did to enable our efforts by doing our best. Given all that God has done, we had better do our best. Can I get a little nerdy theological for a moment? Okay, good. I didn't know what I was going to do if you all said no. I was probably going to do it anyway. Some of you might be familiar with the Calvinist understanding of double predestination. To be fair to John Calvin, he never espoused the belief himself. John Calvin said 
he did believe in predestination, and, and, and he said um, it's the belief that God decides, absent anything that we as humans say or do or believe, God decides who gets to go to heaven. It's really reductionist, but it'll serve our purposes this morning. The people that followed Calvin took it a step further. They said that not only is it clear in the Bible that God elects some, God chooses some, but it's equally clear that God rejects others. Hence, double predestination, which means that God picks some, the elect, for heaven, and picks some, the reprobate, for hell. Again, all of this is regardless of anything any particular person says, does, or believes. Because for Calvinists, there's no such thing as free will. But stay with me. Because even though Methodists and, Wesley, and, and, Methodists and John Wesley himself didn't believe any of this, uh, I want to tell you what Swiss theologian Karl Barth does with this idea of double predestination because I think it's something truly amazing and beautiful. And I hope you will too. So remember, double predestination. Elect going, elect good, going to heaven, reprobate bad, going to hell. Karl Barth says that humanity, all of humanity, is the elect. As we receive a relationship with God, that God working in this world means all of humanity is elect in some way because God relates to us. God reaches out to us. But what about the reprobate? Bart says that in being in relationship with the world and humanity, God himself is the reprobate because being in relationship with us hurts God. It costs God so much in order to have a relationship with us. Bart says that in God's eternal decision to be for us in Jesus Christ, God chooses punishment, degradation, hurt, and damnation for God's own self. God knew what relating to us would cost, and yet God chose it anyway. I think that's beautiful. God works, therefore we can work. God works, God hurts himself, God costs himself, God loses himself, all for us. Therefore, friends, we must work. We got to get to work. We have to take ownership of our own spiritual journeys. We have to maximize the means of grace in our lives. God's done a lot. In fact, God's done enough. Now it's really our turn. So how do we do this? John Wesley was fond of talking about the means of grace. There are places in our lives, places in this world, where God has covenanted to meet us in grace if we will humble, humble ourselves and go there. Things like coming to worship, partaking in the sacraments, reading the Bible, prayer, small group Christian fellowship, acts of mercy like feeding the hungry, helping the poor, caring for the hurting, going on mission trips. It can also mean leading a completely different life, like the Philippians were having to do. It might mean that declaring Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is not. It might mean saying that we aren't going to play sports on Sunday. It might mean saying that we will save everything we can after we have given our tithe to God's church. It means being more loving, being more gracious, being more forgiving. It means falling more and more in love with God. It means continuing to grow in God's grace. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God works, therefore you can work. God works, therefore you must work. Paul continues, 
Do everything without grumbling or, arg or arguing. Friends, can we read this verse in September and October when the election cycle is really in swing? That's a bad joke. Sorry. But seriously, what would this look like if we did this? What would our church look like if we did this? What would our world look like if we did nothing more than lived out this verse? I digress. Paul continues, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul is now beginning to finish off this long section about how the Christian community ought to live and behave. And this is one of those places in the Bible where even though we could do a ton of digging, we don't really need to in order to get the point that Paul is making. I could tell you, just to show you I did my homework, that Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 32, whose exact meaning in Hebrew and Greek is a bit obscure, or that the reference to stars shining in the sky is a callback to Daniel, just to show you I did my homework. But given that there isn't a huge Jewish contingent in Philippi, References to the Old Testament don't make a ton of sense and wouldn't have been really all that helpful to that community. Plus, his meaning on the surface is clear. The Christian church is being persecuted. Paul has traveled across the Roman world to spread the scandalous message that Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead in the hopes of converting the world. And yet that message is facing resistance. They live in a warped and crooked generation, or else all would plainly see the truth of the gospel. The proper Christian response to all of this is to be a light shining out in the darkness. The proper Christian response is to be stars at night. We are to be a sign of God's new life in the midst of a world of death. Paul has been talking to the Philippians. Paul has been talking about the Philippians' need to humble themselves to be Christ-like, and to work out their own salvation. They are to do this so that they can be lights in the midst of darkness. How are you letting your light shine? Are you, or are you contributing to the darkness? How are you trying to reflect God's light? And lastly, Paul says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul finishes this section on a somewhat down note, but it's on a theme that he's been hinting at all along. Paul says that even if he is being poured out like a drink offering, which I take as an allusion to his impending death, even if he is about to die. One commentary I read said that Paul, in these last four verses, um, is talking about his legacy. That even if Paul dies, he can be proud that he leaves behind a church in Philippi that can continue his work, can continue shining the light of Christ, and Paul is proud that he's leaving something lasting behind. I remember a few weeks ago being at Gary McCluskey's funeral. Gary was a pastor who was heavily involved in the Chrysalis and Emmaus community. And I was, I'd met him a couple times, but our paths hadn't crossed 
terrible, uh, a ton. Um, and I was blown away when I walked into the worship center at how many people were there, at how many people whose lives had been touched by this one man. Gary had died very suddenly of a heart attack, but friends, that service was a celebration. The service was rocking. Their service was filled with rejoicing over all the work that Gary had done in the name of the gospel and for God, and you could see the lasting impact that his life had meant. When we work for Christ, when we contribute to the church, when we are about the work of the gospel, we contribute to work that will last We continue to work for things that will go on into eternity. What lasting impression are you leaving on this earth? Who are you pouring into? And who has poured into you? Who would you want to celebrate for the work of God they have done in your life? I think these are important questions, and I think they're important for us to take a moment in prayer considering So let's take a few moments to think about and thank God for those people that have poured into us whose work for the gospel has not been in vain because it continues on in our lives. And let's take a moment to pray and ask God who we should be pouring into, how we can work for things that will be of lasting importance. Let's go to God for a time of silent prayer. Almighty and all-loving God. When we when we didn't know you, when we were lost, when we were when we had no hope, you worked in our lives. You sent us grace. And you worked through those people that we just named to you in the silence of our hearts. You sent us people to tell us about you and your love, to tell us about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. You sent us people to to help us be more loving, to be more gracious, and who embodied that love and that grace. 
for those that have poured into our lives, that have poured your love and your mercy and your grace into our lives, we give you thanks. And we know that their work, their labor was not in vain because it continues on in us and in all the other lives that those people have touched. That we know that when we work for your kingdom, we are working for something eternal. Help us to be so bold in our lives. Help us to be so bold in our work. Help us to spread that love and that grace and that mercy to others. And help us stay in touch with you. Help us to work out our own salvation with the awe and respect due to the work that you have done in our lives. So that this work that you want to complete in us may be brought to fruition. Help us to stay in love with you, God. Help us to stay in touch with you. And help us to grow ever closer to your love and grace, which are the source of our being. All this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.